Lord, you who are here, please mercifully be with us. Open our mind. I believe the Lord, for some of us tonight, very personally, but hopefully too as part of his church, will more fully bring us to that place of knowing that we're in the center of his presence and of his will. So Lord, as we stand in your presence... Come, Holy Spirit. And may all be done to the glory of the Father. Would you protect our minds, Lord, and let your holy angels stand guard. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And uh, I do want to provoke us, so if you do feel slightly provoked, go cry over Ron and Susie, and they'll explain. You know, just feel sorry for Sean. So these are verses right out of context. The uh, main gospel reading tonight will not. I'm go- I want to talk with us about the power of the cross. Today we live, even in the church, in a place where we like to make things comfortable for us. In other words, and I'll go after this for a few moments, God's people have become idolatrous. We have very often made God for ourselves. Now that cashes out into something more, which is something that I'm particularly interested in for a whole host of reasons, principally because I serve as a bishop in the Church of Jesus Christ, and therein is the issue. It's his church. But I guarantee that if I came and talked to you You might have your own personal stories, but you'll certainly know friends who will say something like this. I love Jesus and hate his church. Now, hear this in the spirit in which it's meant. That's not possible. You cannot claim to love Jesus and hate what he loves. And we could go on with that and we could tease that out into praying for our enemies. But many of us will have stories that would back up why we can say that. 
And please, 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 I would not be unsympathetic to that story, though very often it works both ways. But if we want to enjoy the grace of God flowing more freely, presumably one of the things that we need to do is to get in the flow of where Jesus is and is going and what he loves and what he's died for. And in fact, the scripture will tell us that the cross is not only effective in your life, but it is his death that he gave to buy his church. Which tells me something both about you and his church. Precious. And one of the reasons why in your world and mine that we find this incredibly difficult is not only bad experience and the healings that we need emotionally and all the rest of it, but it's still in the heart of our culture an understanding that I'm the center. And unless we're prepared to have the eye of the center completely removed, which is not only an event but a process, we will never understand the power of the cross and so subsequently we will never fully enjoy the joy of his resurrection. But therein is the spiritual battle. And recently, for those of you who like to practice such things, and some do and some don't as Christians, the first Sunday in Lent, we read the temptations of Christ. And the temptations of Christ boil down to one thing. Avoid the cross. Do whatever you like. Do signs and wonders. Make everybody feel that everything's well. But please, 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 Jesus, don't go to the cross. Because the devil knows that if Jesus ever hits the cross, his end is assured. And so that temptation has come down to you and to me. And so today you will find many Christians who run into trouble, immediately they suffer. Because after all, if the Lord is with them, they will not suffer, which is really strange. Because our Lord is the suffering servant. So let's have a look at the cross. And the two texts I want to give you, the first one, we could have pulled it from Romans. I'm doing so tonight from 1 Corinthians 1.17. And there's a particular reason why Paul said the first thing, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. God has certain means to reach us. And I would argue that a principal means, if not the principal means, is the cross. The second thing is the church itself. And I simply leave you to ponder this as I continually do. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul will come, excuse me, and he will 
say this about the church. No, sorry, the end of chapter 1. You'll probably have used a lot of these texts in spiritual warfare. And in Ephesians 1 verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet. Well, that's good news. And appointed him. Anybody, by the way, got the ESV with them tonight as their Bible? Could you read that instead of appointed? What does it say for us? 22. Right, there's a slight difference in how the NIV handles it, which I love to read, appointed, and the way that was just expressed through the ESV, Christ is given. And he is given to be head over everything for the church. And then we get a description of church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And I simply ask you at some stage to reflect on what is Paul talking about? That the fullness of Christ is in his church. And so before we come to the gospel passage, one more thing, which is to invite you to think of the body of Christ on earth as literal, not a metaphor. You and I tonight are not like the body of Christ on earth. We are. That's incredible. And if Christ has made us to be his body on earth, here comes the genius bit, we are his body on earth. What a call. You know, when we get bent out of shape emotionally, we lose focus as to who am I and what am I for? I say this very gently, tenderly, but truthfully. The answer is going to always be Jesus. We are for him, and we are for his church. Now, if you turn back, and this is where we'll get into it, I want to take us to John's description of the death of Jesus in John chapter 19. I'm going to be reading from verse 28. And you'll understand that in John's gospel, John has a purpose for you. His desire is that you will be a Christian tomorrow. And he's very aware that there's a possibility that you might not be. Because when he's writing this in his older age, he has had the horror of seeing many of his friends who were hot for God. Where are they? And he wants us. His desire is that we are faithful to the one who has been faithful. And so we might pray for faithfulness. 
when in verse 28 of John 19, later knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to the lips of Jesus. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. That's God speaking. With that, he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it was given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Now surely we've all read the accounts of the crucifixion. And this is the most ugly, beautiful event of all history. I guarantee that unless you are particularly bent out of shape, you would have not wanted to watch any crucifixion. Although it was a kind of entertainment, anything that we show of the crucifixion today, and whoever your favorite is, doesn't get close to it. Not just in the pain and the agony of it, but what actually in the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus was literally going on. We don't come anywhere close to it. It was ugly. And yet that ugliness, God turns into what? The most beautiful thing he could ever do. And this is vital in our lives because our Redeemer loves to take that which is considered ugly and make it beautiful. I have... Now, I need to be careful. But how many of you ladies go to the hairdresser and come out satisfied? I sometimes overhear conversations. I really enjoy doing so. It, some of them are profoundly sad to me. But they, they, you, you, do, no, you don't, obviously. But I have heard ladies discussing their hairdos 
And I rarely hear them say perfection. There's something not quite... Some of you are smiling, so I guess maybe you... And then there's this business like Ron and myself. We are both content, we're perfect in our looks, intellect, and weight. I mean, I'm just putting it out there. You get the point. Whenever the right height, the right shape, the right age, the right anything, there's always that sense of profound dissatisfaction. dissatisfaction. And we need to give that dissatisfaction to the Lord so that he can bring it to peace. And dare I say, not take out the dissatisfaction, but use that which you consider ugly to build something beautiful. And if you want a scriptural understanding from that, think of Mary, not the mother, but the one that the scripture continues to say, from whom he cast out seven demons. That God used not to glorify the fact that she was demonized, but when she told her testimony, it was, look at what the Lord has done in my ugliness to bring freedom. And that little cameo stuck with her. We still think of her today. Oh, you're the one with the seven whoppers. But God left it there in terms of his talking about her for his glory. And occasionally what we find ourselves doing is we want to get rid of stuff that God says, no, 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 I don't want you to be so much rid of it as transformed in it. Does that make sense? It'll almost seem as if God, this is a Baptist preacher, by the way, that I love reading. He says this, if you get hold of this, you will come to a point, and it'll be wrong thinking, but you will come to a point where you will say about certain things, God intended me to sin. Because you have so received the forgiveness of God over that event or whatever it was that you think, well, he must have intended that for me because look at how he's redeemed it. He pulls beauty out of ugliness. Is that okay with you? So sometimes the very things that we fear is the very place where God is at work. And if you pull somebody on too fast, they will miss the work of the Spirit. It's all right. A lot of this healing stuff takes time, doesn't it? We've discovered. So here's Jesus. It's ugly. It's brutal. It's much bigger than we're discussing tonight, obviously. But he says, it is finished. And in the life of Christ, unlike our lives, Jesus was in charge of his death, even as he's in charge of yours. So he is the one who can say at the end, I have completely walked in obedience to my Father. 
I can't, he can. And so, for John, if you like these words, the glory is always the cross. You know, I love some, singing some of those Dave Ruth songs. Oh, let your glory fall in this place. Well, that's a great song. But let me explain something very clearly. From John's perspective, the glory is here. It can't not be. If the cross has begun to do its work in this place and in your life, the glory is here. And again, gently saying this, whether you get gold dust or not. And I have been in a place, but I won't tell you quite exactly where it was because it would freak some of you out. But it was in poverty-stricken part of Buenos Aires. And I saw that we came out, and I, of course, you know, looking for the, where's the glory on me? But it was on my wife, as you'd expect. But the glory is in the cross. And you don't strain for that. You've got it. It is finished, says the Lord. It was for Satan. It was the real beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. But it was also the place where something else was happening where our sin, not only our sins, which the more we go on in the Christian walk, I think the more we lament, it's like, <sighs> done it again. But the reason why of the cross was, of course, not so much our sins, and I need to be careful for those of you Baptists here. It's the very nature of why we sin that needed changing. Not, ah, oh, this, 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 this. It's who we were. But it's the great exchanges from who we were to who we now are. That's transformation. And I get the point that sometimes we don't feel like it and all the rest of it. But there is that point in saying, but the Word of God says. Now that can be mocking, but I'll tell you what the Word of God does say. And we have to stand on the word of God. And I mean that properly, not quoting Bible verses as each other, but knowing that his word is true. It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so many commentators read it, which means he died. Which he did. But that's not what John wants to say to us. And I'm deliberately doing it this way because Ron suggested that I talked about some of my wider church experience and what I've learned. So this is why I'm doing it. I'm not asking you to go with me at every point. I'm just saying this is how some of your brothers and sisters in the wider church um, will experience it. And the first thing I want to see is, say is particularly from the, the orthodox world. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And what, what they would say to us is, and we need to be very careful theologically, but when Jesus died, whew, here's the Spirit of God. 
crucifixion is a Trinitarian event. You can never separate the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But what is happening in the crucifixion is the same Holy Spirit that was, quotes, in Jesus, and this opens up a whole can of other stuff, but just, just stay with this part of it, is released. Now, you're all going to say Pentecost. But the Orthodox say no. Of course he came at Pentecost, by the way. So let's make that clear. But it is in the encounter of the cross that the Spirit is received. Oh. So you mean, Jesus, that you died, and listen to the language that I've used, he died and he gave up. Now what's the cross about? It is the giving up of himself in obedience and love to his Father. Here's the kicker. Voluntarily, no cosmic child abuse, voluntarily, he gives it up and in so doing, he receives, as it were, the new family. Evening. Now if this doesn't make you feel good, And that's not what it's about. But in the giving up, he receives. And he receives a gift. You. We think of the gifts of the Spirit, as it were, as coming this way, or depending on your favor, you know, Pentecost, boom, coming down. I want to suggest tonight the part of the grace, not, it's not so much coming down as coming out of. Grace is streaming towards you. It cannot not be. And you might say, oh, I don't feel any grace. Listen, this is where I get really pastoral. I don't care how you feel. Because it is. Does that make sense? It's stronger You say, oh, you don't believe in feelings. Yes, I do. I had one once. Okay, so let's get that clear. I do. And I believe in emotions and feelings because I believe it's part of God's creativity. I just think that they need redeeming as well. So God in Christ gives up his spirit. He receives you as his gift. And one day he's going to present this gift to the Father. And say, Father, look what I've done. And I think to myself, well, blow me. All words to that effect. But you're Christians. Because some of us put that stronger. But I don't get it, Lord. Why would you make us, the church, your gift? They said, well, that's what I came to do. A people for myself a people who I own, a people who will own me. It's always been the history. And you're it. And so we line up with the things that, that God loves. And I want you to see here, there's cost. This is not sentimentality. It's, co- it's going to cost Jesus, fully God, fully man, everything. It was the great St. Augustine who everybody likes to quote, never mind which type of strict question they are. 
why are you here? And I don't know why you're here on a Thursday night. Why are you here? And Augustine said this, the Father thought you. So he had you born. Now again, not knowing you very personally at all, I recognize that in any situation that we're in, some of us had very traumatic births. Some of us have very difficult parents. None of us have perfect parents. I'm a granddad. I'd like to think I'll be, I don't know what the word is, an example of Christ to my granddaughters. But I'm sure I'll mess it up, certainly in, with my three sons. And still, I mean, you, I just don't get over this, unfortunately. A week ago, I went to my youngest son, who's taller than me, and I said, son, what I've just done is a terrible example, and I am so sorry. I repent. You know what he always says to me? Well, see, it happens more than once, by the way. Never changes his opinion as to whether I'm his dad. He just knows that if I can put it like this, that his dad's big enough to repent to his son. And he has to walk, watch me walk around sometimes like a professional. He's going, yeah, if only they knew. But God does. And giftings and call aren't related necessarily to holiness, unfortunately. <laughs> That's another one. But God, God thought you... So you're here. Now that truly is no accident. But Sean, you don't know my story. No, I don't. And it might be very, very painful. God loved you. He thought you. So you're here. You never decided to be born. And actually, you never decided to be born again. But that's a theological perspective. You didn't. He came and got you. That's a lot stronger. So our Orthodox brethren have taught me that the cross and the spirit are totally connected. We tend to do a kind of timeline that goes like this, you know, it runs on, oh, well, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. What if it was all happening all together and there was repetition? Then the second thing I want to take us to is, is more of my experience with the Catholic world. We know and we read here of prophecies of the Old Testament, and of course it's coming to pass but there's going to be a spearing to add to something else. What had happened, of course, was that there were nail prints, presumably here and here and on the feet. We get that. But there are marks made by a spear, and two things happen. Blood and water gush. And we go, well, that's interesting. But what is part of the church's understanding 
of what is going on. Why would John, because John is so particular, isn't he? He only gives us seven miracles. Why would he record for us this incident in the knowledge that he wants you to be a Christian tomorrow? Is it just he found a prophecy in the Old Testament and said, well, I better throw that bit in? I, I beg to ask us to think a bit deeper than that. Both the marks of nail prints and the spear, one before Jesus died, one after he was dead, was put there by humans. God is marked by sinful humanity. He is not absent from it. We're back to these sufferings. You know, people say, if there's a God! You've heard that, haven't you? Now, there's still good questions, and some suffering is just horrible. But part of the response of the cross is this. Why the cross? Love. This is the place of assurance of love. And listen, doesn't make a lot of sense because how can this ugliness be a part of God's ultimate beauty? Yet it is. And we've already, before Easter, you will have read, Father, if there's any other way now would be a very good time to bring on plan B. But there isn't. And put Jesus' love for the Father, I'm making a subtle differentiation here, or I'll try and pull it back in a minute. Put Jesus' love and obedience of the, for the Father above his concern for you. I'll pull that back in one moment. But Jesus was here to do the bidding of the Father. I have come to do your will. I can pray that. In fact, I have. I've probably prayed it more than once. And then go, mm, plan B, Lord, whatever that might be. Both of those marks, nail prints and spear, are made by humanity. And as we look at the gushing out of the blood and water, the Roman church has taught us to look at this. What is blood? The life is in the blood. And depending on how you look at this in the water, is this to depict our naturalness. In other words, man is born once and man is born again. Or is it, and I throw these questions out for you, that somehow wrapped up in here, we need to find a fresh understanding of the Eucharist and baptism. I simply ask the question for us to ponder. What is going on? Wherever you go with that, and obviously 
I've come to certain conclusions, as I've and here's the point, as I've allowed others into my life to deepen it. See, I don't go to anywhere where I'm not changed. Otherwise, I don't, believe I've not, I don't believe I've encountered the Holy Spirit. If ministry is about going somewhere to do something to somebody so that I can go home to be the same, that isn't Jesus. There's going to be sacrifice, there's going to be cost, and there's going to be change. But whatever you do with that, we'll all agree on this. It is the crucified Lord who's resurrected. It's not a different Lord. Therefore, part of the Lord's story is a bit like Mary from whom he cast seven devils because there will come moments when guess what he'll do to show himself in his resurrected body. That's the walk to Emmaus at the end of the day. I think. Then they recognized him in the breaking of bread. My suspicion is this is what has happened. I can't prove this one, so I'll need to be careful. But I think as he blessed the bread and all the rest of it, however he looked and with whatever he was wearing, he suddenly raised his hands. And the two went, literally, oh God. What humanity had done sinful humanity, and God himself bore the marks. Wow. This is our God who loves us. This is our God of obedience. This is our God who takes ugliness and turns it into the most beautiful thing ever. Cost him everything. And when we come to the ascension, which is often the forgotten feast of the year, but back home, I do it on Thursday, 40 days, and that may be making a point. Convenience religion now says, well, we'll go to the following Sunday because nobody will come out on a Thursday night. I get that. But Paul, Paul's, sorry, Luke's sense of timing, 40 seems to be important, doesn't it, in Scripture? What do you think? But anyway, my point tonight is whenever you celebrate Ascension, and please do celebrate Ascension, it is the crucified, risen Lord, the one and the same Jesus, who's ascended. So tonight, the pierced one is not only in heaven, but he's in you, and he's walking with you. And he has exchanged not so much everlasting life, which was the old word, but eternal life. Yeah, it'll go on forever. And some people go, oh no, please no. But his resurrection presence is our portion tonight. Not our resurrected bodies, which means that I can anticipate more, not just as a nice idea, more, Lord, but we can anticipate more in our experience. So it is the same Lord who now takes us up into himself, and in the Ephesians passage, seated with Christ in heavenly places, 
So are we. But it's the crucified, risen, ascended. If we went, ran it through Pentecost, Jesus received something from the Father. It's a Trinitarian event. Pentecost is Christ pouring out the Spirit. He said, I thought you just told us that the Spirit came on the cross. I did. Why do we have to limit him? These things happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I want us to end tonight with a very simple thought. God's going to do what he said he'd do. Be at peace. In one sense, he's already got you to heaven, though that's not the end of the story. But in another sense, he, I'm going to use a different type of verse, he who has begun a good work in you is really committed to bring it to completion. But now let's switch it back. Why? For your sake? Well, yeah, you're important. He wouldn't have done any of this if you weren't. But you're the gift. That's amazing. You're the gift that Christ will give to the Father. I mean, if I've explained that at all, does that not make you feel a little valued? Just a thought. And so, in a moment we will pray. And Jesus himself should have said, when he taught the Lord's Prayer, as it were, my Father who art in heaven. What did he go and wonderfully do? Our. He said, I'm praying with you. Our Father. I've brought you into my family. And as the old counseling manuals put it, therefore you belong, you are secure, and you are valued. Not as some, let's try and hope and feel that, although that happens and that's, that, I'm not against that. But as objective fact of the cross and of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're his because he says so and he came and got you. Well, for any Pentecostals here, <laughs>